Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Saturday, August 20th, 2022. It's been 3,095 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 178 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Malcontent News has a strict errors and omissions policy because our team takes pride in being accurate versus being first. Yesterday, we reported that Russian forces had recaptured Blahodatne in the Kherson Oblast. That was in error. Russian forces captured the Blahodatne 32 kilometers north in the Mykolaiv Oblast. We've adjusted the map to return Blahodatne and Kherson to Ukrainian control and move the line of conflict north of Blachodatne and Mykolaiv to show the capture accurately. We thank you for your understanding. If you feel we have made an error in our reporting, you can always let us know by emailing tips at malcontentment.com to reach our newsroom. Please put errors and omissions in the subject line so it can be routed to our analysts. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Ukraine scored a psychological victory by striking the Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol with a combat drone. Second, the crisis at Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was likely a carefully orchestrated psychological operation attempting to smear Kyiv, with Russian President Putin backing down and agreeing to allow UN inspectors inside the facility. Third, Russian airborne or VDV forces are having an impact in Kherson, moving the line of conflict in two directions. However, other units are reducing their mobility and firing fewer artillery shells. Fourth, we maintain that the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic and the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic are combat ineffective, even with the small success their forces are gaining in Marinka at the cost of losing control of parts of Piski. Fifth, Russian forces' multiple operational security failures are likely due to poor training and the high number of experienced soldiers and officers lost during the first six months of the war. And finally, we maintain the battlefront is frozen across Ukraine, and time is running out for both belligerents to launch brigade or army-sized offensives. Let's take a look at some regional updates. As always, we start in the Donbass region with the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova Triangle. There continues to be limited fighting in northeast Donetsk. Russian forces attempted to advance on Ivanodarivka and Vimka without success. 
Ukraine hit a Russian military vehicle repair depot in Slovyanosirsk. The town sits on the Russian border in northeast Ukraine and is 60 kilometers from the line of conflict. Exiled Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor Serhiy Khaidai reported up to 100 pieces of unspecified equipment were destroyed while inflicting 50 casualties. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 18th. You can find it in Thursday's episode around minute two. In the Bakhmut area, Russian forces and their proxies attempted to advance on Solidar, supported by artillery and attack aircraft, and attempted to advance into Bakhmutska, both without success. Military leaders from the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, claimed their troops were in Bakhmutska. The LNR has consistently exaggerated and falsely claimed territorial gains without supporting information. They did not provide photo or video proof to support their claims. PMC Wagner Group, Russian Airborne VDV forces and elements of the LNR 2nd Army Corps, supported by Russian military, attempted to advance on Bakhmut without success. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, Russian forces attempted to advance on Kodema, Zaitseve, north of Horlivka, Dacha, and Mayorsk, and were unsuccessful. LNR officials claimed to have captured Dacha and Mayorsk without supporting information. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported fighting and artillery shelling in Mayorsk during their evening update, which doesn't support claims of capture. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 8th, which we recapped on Monday's episode around minute 6 or 7. In southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, Russian forces attempted to advance into Optin and the northwest region of Piski and were unsuccessful. There was intense fighting in Marinka. Russian forces hit Ukrainian positions with artillery and airstrikes in the eastern part of the city, and there was house-to-house fighting in the center. Russian state media agency Izvestia made claims that the Donetsk People's Republic controlled the center of Marinka but the video provided showed anything but a situation under control. Izvestia has a history of exaggerated claims. We've updated the map and moved the conflict line further west, coding the center part of Marinka as contested. Pictures and videos showed dark smoke rising from the central railroad station in Donetsk. DNR officials did not provide any additional information. In the southern part of the Donbass, DNR separatists attempted to advance deeper into Novomikhailivka and were unsuccessful. Further west on the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border, Russian forces attempted to advance on Zolotaniva without success. Some pro-Russian social media accounts claimed that the settlement of Vodain had been captured, but the reports from the general staff reported an advance was repelled. More reliable accounts made no mention of Vodine. Russian and Ukrainian forces exchanged artillery, mortars, and rockets from MLRS along the entire line of contact. Ukraine hit the Russian-occupied airbase outside of Melitopol with at least one missile. Video clearly showed one missile traveling across the sky at a low altitude and exploding shortly after. There were no details on damage at the time of recording. Our assessment of the Donbass is unchanged from August 17th. You'll find it in Wednesday's episode around minute 
Let's move on to the Kharkiv region, starting in northwestern Kharkiv. Russian forces fought positional battles near Potomnik without changing the line of conflict. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported that Russian forces attempted to advance on Borshova and were unsuccessful. We had this settlement and Slobozhansky coded as under Russian control. Based on this update, we've moved the line of conflict north and coded both settlements as contested. Our assessment? The front is frozen north of Kharkiv. Positional battles and trading control of the settlements on the line of conflict should be expected until one or both belligerents increase the number of deployed forces or withdraw. Russian forces remotely mined the settlements of Stary Saltiv and Verkny Saltiv. The Russian Air Force carried out an airstrike on Stary Saltiv. These are defensive acts aimed at slowing or preventing a Ukrainian advance. It also indicates that Russian forces don't plan to advance further south than Rubizhne. That would require their forces to pass through their own minefield. Russian forces fired artillery rockets from MLRS and used tanks for indirect fire along the entire line of conflict. There was also an airstrike on Lebyazhe, 55 kilometers southeast of Kharkiv. The settlement was remotely mined on August 18th and 19th. Our assessment from August 12th is unchanged. We recapped it on yesterday's episode around minute 9. Let's shift our focus to the Izum axis. After Ukrainian forces shelled Russian positions in Izum, Russian troops stepped up attacks along the entire axis, ending a period of relative calm. South of Izum, Russian troops tried to advance on Vernopilia, Karnohivka, Novodimitrivka, Dibrovne, Dolina, and Kurulka. None of the offenses were successful, and it was the largest offensive launched by Russia south of Izum in over a month. A Russian tank, likely by an ammunition cache, was destroyed east of Dimitrivka, right on the line of conflict on our Russia-Ukraine war map. This is north of Karnohivka and Vernopilia, confirming an advance was attempted. Moving to assessment for a moment, we've added an area of contested control south of Sulichivka and included Dibrovne. In our assessment, the advances toward Nova Dimitrivka and Karulka likely involved one to two platoons moving through patches of forest that dot the terrain. There has been no report of a breakthrough of Ukrainian lines by the Russian Ministry of Defense, PMC Wagner Group, or pro-Russian accounts. Overall, our assessment for the region remains unchanged from August 8th. We recapped it on Monday's episode around minute 14. Let's move on to the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions. In Kherson, Operational Command South of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reported that Russian forces launched an offensive from Oleksandrivka in the direction of Tavrysk. Both the General Staff and Operational Command South reported the advance was unsuccessful. Based on this new intelligence, we've moved the line of conflict north of Oleksandrivka. The region between Oleksandrivka and Tavrysk is flat terrain covered in wheat fields and challenging to defend, so the area ceded back to Russia is significant but unpopulated. On August 7th, Russian forces attempted to advance on Blahodatne in the Mykolaiv Oblast. 
Reliable Russian sources and PMC Wagner Group reported the advance was unsuccessful because the settlement was more heavily defended than they anticipated. Wagner did not participate in the offensive and relayed information from Russian airborne or VDV troops involved in the attack. Neither belligerent mentioned the settlement after August 9th. We assess that between August 10th and August 12th, Russian forces took control of the settlement. Today, Operational Command South reported that Russian forces attempted to advance toward Partizanske, but were unsuccessful. Some more assessment here. The spearhead in Blachodatne is attempting to reach the T-1508 highway and sever the ground line of communication between Mykolaiv and Ukrainian positions along the Inulets River. It may be an attempt to provide additional relief to Snikhrivka, which has seen periods of intense fighting. On the Inulets River bridgehead, the Russian Air Force attacked Lozova in Bilikrinitsia, while Andriyevka came under artillery fire. Russian troop movements across Kherson remained limited compared to a week ago. In Mykolaiv, Mayor Alexander Sinkovich reported the city had been hit by missiles overnight. There was no additional information at the time of recording. A Russian soldier at a forward operating base in Pershotravneve tested a consumer drone within the compound, recording a 360-degree view of the location. The drone was later used for reconnaissance and was lost in combat. Ukrainian forces recovered the drone and found the details of the Russian FOB still on the memory card. The video was authenticated and geolocated. Malcontent News is not publishing the exact location in adherence to the Code of Ethics established by the Society of Professional Journalists. In Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia, the situation at Zaporizhia nuclear power plant appears to have been diffused. The Kremlin agreed to permit inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, to visit the plant following the United Nations plan after French President Emmanuel Macron spoke with Russian President Vladimir Putin in a video call. In a statement released by the Kremlin, President Putin agreed to provide, quote, the necessary assistance to access the power plant. Hours after the announcement, the settlements of Nikopol and Marinets were hit by artillery. Marinets was also hit by rockets fired from MLRS launchers within the nuclear plant compound. Four civilians were wounded in the attack. There were unconfirmed reports that Russian forces had started to remove some of the military hardware and other assets from the power plant. In a letter to the United Nations, the Kremlin denied they had weapons or ammunition stored anywhere on the compound. A video released yesterday showed military vehicles and ammunition stored in the machine shop of the Reactor 1 complex. Drone video has recorded trucks and infantry fighting vehicles entering and exiting the same machine shop. Jumping to assessment for a moment, on yesterday's show we reported that our analysts were split on the outcome of the Zaporizhia NPP crisis. The group that assessed that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant situation was a Kremlin-manufactured crisis meant to discredit Ukraine appears to have read the situation correctly. President Putin did not implicitly declare he would follow the United Nations plan, with inspectors traveling to the plant through Kiev. However, Putin was likely under intense pressure to yield, even among his closest foreign allies. China and Turkey had openly called for inspectors to enter the plant, and Turkey was supportive of demilitarization.
Ukrainian air defenses shot down four-caliber cruise missiles near Dnipro in the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. Residents reported an explosion in Dnipro. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that all the missiles had been intercepted. At the time of recording, there wasn't information available if debris had landed in the city or if the sound of explosions came from air defense systems. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. In the Cherniev and Sumy region, Ivan Deneka, a member of the Krasnopilia Village Council, was killed when he swerved to avoid a car accident and drove into a marked minefield. Deneka was transporting crops that had recently been harvested. He was killed instantly in the blast. There was no information on if he had family. In the Black Sea and Odessa region, there are multiple reports of drone attacks across Russian-controlled Crimea. There were multiple explosions in Sevastopol, with smoke rising above the city. Local officials reported a drone crashed into the roof of the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, and multiple videos showed a commercial drone flying over Sevastopol. The drone appears to be the same type used in other attacks on high-value targets deep into Russian-controlled territory. Another video recorded the sound of Pantsir anti-aircraft systems and small arms fire in the city. Local reports indicate the drone was shot down, but still crashed into the headquarters building of the Black Sea Fleet. Local officials and social media videos show Russian air defense active over Bakhchisarai, with conflicting reports on the situation at the time of recording. Social media users were reporting two to three explosions were heard, and there were reports of smoke rising from the Medovaya military airfield. A picture circulating on the internet claiming to be of Medovaya is from a different explosion on August 9th, unrelated to today's attack. There were reports of explosions in Yevpatria and Zauzern from Ukrainian partisans and Russian-appointed governor of occupied Crimea, Sergei Oksyonov. In a post on Telegram, Oksyonov claimed a drone had been intercepted and there was no damage. Switching to assessment here, success in warfare isn't always measured by kinetic damage. The psychological impact of dropping a homemade combat drone on the Black Sea Fleet headquarters is significant. The Russian Ministry of Defense relieved the Black Sea Fleet commander, Admiral Igor Osipov, due to a loss of confidence. Vice Admiral Viktor Sokolov woke up on his first full day of duty to multiple combat drone strikes across Crimea. Western intelligence agencies validated our analysis of the attack on Saki Naval Air Base last week, concluding that more than half of the aircraft at the field were damaged or destroyed. We had assessed through available satellite images that 14 aircraft had been destroyed or damaged. Based on the blast radius of the explosion, we concluded that 20 to 25 of the 43 aircraft on the base were too close to the epicenter to survive. Let's talk about some developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. A large fire broke out at Sochi Airfield in Russia, 
with multiple videos showing a plume of black smoke rising from a fire next to the base. Local officials are claiming it's a garbage fire. The United States announced another tranche of military aid to Ukraine. The $775 million package includes additional unspecified rockets for the HIMARS system, 1,605 millimeter howitzers with 36,000 rounds of artillery, 15 Scan Eagle unmanned aerial reconnaissance drones, mine clearing systems, 40 Max Pro mine resistant and ambush protected vehicles equipped with mine rollers, additional AGM 88 Harm anti radiation missiles, 1,500 tow anti tank weapons, 1,000 Javelin anti tank weapons, 2,000 anti armor rounds, and additional security assistance, including secure communication systems, night vision devices, thermal imaging systems, and rangefinders. Since 2014, the United States has provided $12.6 billion in military aid to Ukraine. Germany announced a new military aid package for Ukraine. The package will include three more Gephard self-propelled anti-aircraft guns, and 11 M113 armored personnel carriers with ammunition. Berlin is also providing 20 70mm rocket launchers on pickup trucks, also called technicals, with 2,000 rockets and laser designators, over 1,500 rounds of 155mm ammunition, anti-drone equipment, 12 armored recovery vehicles with machine guns, and 255 Vulcano 155mm shells. The Volcano are prototypes with a published range of 70 kilometers. The Legion of Freedom, a special military unit made up of Russian defectors who have sworn allegiance to Ukraine, is forming a second battalion. Soldiers go through a complete retraining program before being deployed in the field. The Legion flies the colors of Free Russia, a blue and white flag. Ukrainian forces shot down a Russian Orlan-10 reconnaissance drone and were shocked when they examined the wreckage. Russia has reported challenges in building the drones used to spot artillery fire due to a high attrition rate and sanctions making parts hard to get. The camera in the drone was a Canon DSLR with a kit-grade prime lens for optics. Some Orlan-10 drones recovered by the Ukrainian military were equipped with disposable plastic water bottles for fuel tanks. Ukrainian TV celebrity Sergei Pritula crowdsourced over $20 million to purchase a radar satellite from Finnish company ICEYE. The satellite is already in orbit, enabling Ukraine to gain immediate access. The satellites differ from conventional ones due to their synthetic radar imaging technology, which can produce high-resolution images at night and see-through cloud cover, according to ICEYE. Ukraine will also have access to a constellation of search-and-rescue satellites, quote, allowing the Ukrainian armed forces to receive radar satellite imagery on critical locations with a high revisit frequency, end quote. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead about 30 seconds to the next segment. The European Union is joining Ukraine's genocide case against Russia. 
Officials submitted their filing to the UN International Court of Justice in The Hague about the case titled Allegations of Genocide under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, Ukraine v. Russian Federation. The International Court of Justice in The Hague ordered Russia to stop its invasion on March 16th, citing genocide in the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. The Kremlin told The Hague they would ignore the declaration. In geopolitical news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky declared he would attend the G20 summit in Indonesia this November, even if Russian President Putin attends. It remains unclear if Putin, Zelensky, or United States President Joe Biden will attend the summit virtually or in person. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu can't go a month without accusing someone of being a Nazi. At a plenary meeting of the First International Anti-Fascist Congress on Saturday, Shoigu said, quote, Today we are witnessing another vivid manifestation of Nazi policy. When the Russophobic idea is being actively promoted from the high European stands to ban all Russian citizens from entering the EU countries. End quote. Russia is holding the one day international anti fascist conference outside of Moscow. The goal is to discuss the causes of neo Nazism. Seventy four, quote, friendly nations were invited to the conference. There was no information about attendance at the event. Malcontent News released an extensive study of the founding of the Russian imperialist movement and its terrorist arm, the Imperial Legion of Russia. The Legion is a designated terrorist organization that trained members of the United States neo-Nazi organization Atomwaffen in Russia. Currently, up to 4,000 members of the Imperial Legion are fighting for Russia, reporting through PMC Wagner Group. Imperial Legion terrorists are also fighting in Syria, Libya, Mali, and the Central African Republic. In April 2020, Mike Pompeo declared the Russian imperialist movement a terrorist organization. It was the first time the United States gave a white nationalist organization the label. In September 2020, Officials with the State Department testified to Congress that American right-wing factions were traveling to Moscow and St. Petersburg for military training by the Russian imperialist movement and returning to the United States. Up to 4,000 open neo-Nazis are fighting for Russia with the Imperial Legion. They are attached to the PMC Wagner Group and report to the Russian Ministry of Defense. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that during negotiations in Lviv on August 18th, he offered Turkey as a host location for a meeting between Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Neither leader had commented directly about Erdogan's offer. In economic news, the S&P and Fitch upgraded Ukraine's credit rating yesterday, citing the, quote, strong committed international financial support to Ukraine, end quote. The ruble closed out the week steady with an official exchange rate of 59 rubles to 1 U.S. dollar. WTI crude climbed to $91 a barrel, and Brent rose to $97 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline for spot market delivery increased to $3.01 a gallon, or 79 cents a liter. SRW Chicago wheat futures increased 2 cents, 
to $0.77 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. We'll have our Week in Review episode tomorrow, and don't forget to join me again on Monday for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.